Well, um, oops. for those of you who are regular attendees here, I've got some bad news. Your uh, regular diet of classical literature and poetry, it's not going to happen today. I was a public school student. <laughs> um, it was about two or three months ago that I told Mike I had always wanted to teach a church on Sunday morning, and that's something that I'd like to do before I left. And uh, <clears throat> he talked to the other elders and deacons, and I hear it was quite the uh, vitriolic debate, but in a rare lapse of judgment, they've consented, so here we are. Um, it is crazy for me to think that in just a few short days that Jess and I are going to be taking our six-month-old little girl and packing up everything we own, heading 500 miles to the south to live in Dallas, Texas with the intent of, Lord willing, uh, attending Dallas Theological Seminary. <clears throat> uh, both Jess and I were born and raised in Topeka. Most of our family and friends are in Topeka, so it's a big change. We're definitely leaving a lot behind. Um, this last five years uh, is kind of the period of time that I began to walk with the Lord, and uh, it's, it's been a period of time of just radical transformation. God has reached into my life and kind of plucked me out of everything I was doing and all the things I thought I was going to do with my life and transferred me and totally redirected my priorities. And um, he's totally just transformed my heart. And I, I absolutely never could have imagined that uh, we would be doing something like this moving to Dallas. But um, we feel pretty confidently that God's told us to go to Dallas, so to Dallas we go. Um, the reason I wanted to teach this morning was just as an opportunity to share a little bit about um, what God's been so powerfully teaching me over the last five years um, that I might be able to impart to you all whom I deeply care about and love um, a little bit of the, you might find the same uh, love and joy and peace that God has spoken into my life. Um, I want to teach this morning out of 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 which is on the study sheet, or if you have your Bibles. Um, Before we jump in, though, these are two of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's two verses, one sentence. Um, Probably very high up there in in the verses in the Bible that have been the most meaningful for me. If I remember correctly, I think they were actually the first verses that I memorized when I started memorizing Scripture. Um, So just a note on the context before we jump in. This letter, 2 Timothy, is a letter... And it's written by the Apostle Paul as he sits in a Roman prison awaiting his execution under the, emperor, the Roman Emperor Nero. And uh, th- these are the final words of a dying man written to his young protege, his disciple Timothy, whom he dearly loves. And it's a, it's a letter filled with uh, words of exhortation and encouragement and reminders with the hope that Timothy would carry on the Apostle's ministry after he dies. So... Just keeping that in mind, uh, let's pray and then we'll jump in. Lord God, you are a God who speaks and you have spoken into this world. You've spoken to us that we might know you. Lord, you speak today. You speak through your word. And Lord, I just pray that you would be making the truth clear, that you'd be giving eyes to see and ears to hear, that you'd be building up your church, that you'd be calling people from darkness to light. I pray that you'd be glorifying yourself. I pray that you would be doing that today, here, now, this morning, Lord. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 All Scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. It might, so what we're going to do, we're just going to break this down and kind of go piece by piece and just try to draw out a little bit of what Paul is saying here. So first he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Paul tells Tim, Tim I know you already know, I know that you've been familiar with the Scripture since your youth, but just as a reminder, because it's so foundationally important to your ministry and to your spiritual walk, that the Scriptures are breathed out by God. And the word here in the Greek is theopneustos, which literally, literally means God-breathed. That God has inspired, God has authored, God has spoken. And Paul reminds Timothy, Tim, these, these words are the words of God spoken to man. And friends, one of the fundamental assertions of the Bible from beginning to end is that it is God's word to mankind. God created man in His image, and that means man uniquely out of all creation and out of all creatures has the unique capacity for fellowship with God. We have the capacity to know Him, to love Him, to interact with Him, to serve Him, to glorify Him, to rebel against Him. And because of the fall, man has been separated from God, but God has continued to speak into the world that we would know Him, that we'd know where we stand with Him, and that we'd know how to receive eternal life by believing in His Son. Um, Hebrews 1, the, 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 the uh, author of the letter of the Hebrews begins Hebrews 1 saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son. God is a God who is actively speaking into the world. In Second Peter, uh, Peter explains a little bit about what this process looked like. He says, first of all, you need to know no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's saying that it's the Holy Spirit of God that's been at work in the lives of men to speak His truth into the world and to record it and to retain it for all time. And friends, I would just say there is no other book like the Bible. The Bible is composed of 66 books with around 40 authors written in three languages over the course of approximately 1,500 years. It's written by shepherds, priests, kings, eunuchs, warriors, fishermen, tax collectors, Jews, and a Gentile. All of its events occurring in real historical places amongst real historical people. The major events in the line of God's redemptive work, God announced hundreds, sometimes thousands of years beforehand. And then he told us what he was doing when he was doing it, and he confirmed it with signs and wonders and miracles. Its message and its words have been attacked and debated ever since the advent of Christianity, and it stood up to the most scrupulous scrutiny. Science, archaeology, and history have verified many aspects of the biblical claims. Its message is wholly consistent within itself, understood on its own terms, within its own grammatical historical context. Jesus himself unequivocally affirmed the divine origin and the inerrancy of Scripture, as well as His disciples. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the most reliable historical events in all of antiquity, with Scripture itself containing multiple independent eyewitness accounts. The Bible itself, from beginning to end, asserts that it is God's Word to mankind. And the Bible being God's Word, I just want to step back and just say, 
the overarching sort of meta-narrative, the overarching unifying theme of the Scripture is the Gospel. That God created us in His image that we could have fellowship with Him, but we have rebelled against Him, we have sinned, we have become sinful from the heart. And God is absolutely just and absolutely good and absolutely righteous. And our sin requires God's judgment. It requires God's wrath. It requires His condemnation. But God does not delight in judgment. He delights that people would turn from darkness to life and He is merciful and gracious. And God, from the very moment of the fall, promised Adam and Eve that He would begin to work redemptively on our behalf. And all of the Bible points to and talks about or explains the life of Jesus Christ that God sent His Son to come to the world to live a perfect life and to be crucified, taking the wrath that we deserve on Himself. God sent His Son to die on our behalf that we would repent and turn from our rebellion against God and place our trust in Christ, believing God when He said that He has provided for our redemption in His Son so that we would receive eternal life, the free gift of righteousness. And I just, I just want to pause here and say, friends, if you're here today, know for certain that God has spoken with clarity, with absolute clarity, and testified with incredible power to these truths. And I would just plead with you that if you haven't, you would accept God's free gift of grace in Jesus Christ to pardon your sins and to give you a new life. John 3.16-18 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, And I would just plead with you that if you haven't, you would put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. So Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is God's Word to man. And then he continues, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Paul's saying, Tim, Scripture, it's God's Word. And it's useful, it's profitable for you to train up God's people. You're to to proclaim it and you're to explain it and you're to apply it to the hearts of God's people that they would be able to live righteous lives. And I just want to kind of jump out of order here a little bit because of the way the English translation works. Paul says it's profitable teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God. And I just want to be clear, the man of God is Paul's way of saying the person, male or female, who has put their trust, their faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot be righteous before God in and of ourselves, and that's not what Paul's talking about here. But when we place our faith in Christ, God declares us right with Him. And He gives us a new life, and He gives us a spirit, and He begins this process of transformation where He's recreating us in the image of His Son. And that's the process that Paul is talking about here. So Paul says it's pro- the Scriptures breathed out by God, and it's profitable or it's useful. And so on your study sheet, you've kind of got a list. I just want to cover a few ways... This is not exhaustive. Uh, in fact, this morning I was reading my Bible. I was reading uh, Psalm 18. And I was like, oh, I should have put that in there. But I didn't. So, so first, uh, God's word accomplishes God's will. In Isaiah 55, God says, Just as the rain and the snow come from heavens to earth and water the earth and bring forth fruit, so does God's word 
leave his mouth and accomplish that which he sent it for. And a great example of this, if you go back to the creation account actually, you see there was nothing and there was God and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God created all of heaven and earth and all of creation by the power and the authority of his word. God's word accomplishes God's will. Uh, Second on your list, God's word is living and active. The Hebrews says that the word of God, it's living and active. And essentially what that means is that God's word serves as sort of a uh, truth mirror that when we read it, it's revealing the inner motives and some subconscious uh, intent of our hearts. It's revealing the reality of the condition of our heart. Uh, next, Paul, uh, Paul in this very same letter says that God's word can, is able to make us wise for salvation. So just like I said in Hebrews, it, it reveals the inner condition of our heart. The scriptures also point to Christ that we have a need and God's provision for our need is Jesus Christ. God's word has life-giving power. Uh, going back to the creation account in Genesis 2, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man, that's Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. God's word has the power to give life. And just returning back to the gospel and applying this a little bit, uh, when we sinned against God, we became spiritually dead. But when God, through his people, proclaims the gospel and we receive it by faith, we're given new life. God's still speaking new life into this world. In Romans 1 Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And lastly on your list, God's word is able to set us free. Um, Jesus says in John 8 to the Jews that believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Paul says to Tim, God's word, it's, it's God's word and it's spoken to man and it's profitable, it's useful in all these ways and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness. And brothers and sisters in Christ specifically, I just want to say the gospel is not, a, a, the gospel is not believe and be saved, but believe and be saved and be discipled. When we put our faith in God, we're given a new life, we're given the Holy Spirit who's at work and in us to will and to work according to God's good purpose. But we still have all these old deficient ways of seeing life and these presuppositions that are based on lies that hold us into bondage and sin. And God wants to deliver us from that and His means of doing that is the truth. But it's a process of discipleship. And I just would want to remind you of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. God's given us a new life. He's given us His Spirit and His truth. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul says that God's given us apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. God raises up people to proclaim and to explain and to apply the truth of God's Word that we would hear it and receive it in faith and He'd begin this transformative work in us. So there's, there's four verbs there. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training. They basically fall into two camps. There's the teaching and the training and the reproof and the correction. Teaching and training, this is information. This is what is true. Who is God? What is He like? What is He about? Where do we stand with God? What is the Gospel? How can we be saved? Where do we go when we die? What is the church? This is information. And I would just say, brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we have an 
obligation and a need to be growing in our understanding of the truth when Mike or Kent or Bill or Bart are up here uh, or Larry or anyone else who comes up here and teaches, when they're teaching through a book of the Bible, we should be laboring that by the time they're done, we have a better understanding of that book. And not only should we understand the books of the Bible, but we should be growing in our knowledge and understanding of the doctrines of the Christian faith. It's the truth that sets us free. We need to be laboring to understand the truth. So there's the training and education, which is information, what is true. But there's the other side of the coin, which is reproof and correction. And I would just say, these are harsh words. Reproof and correction. You know, Paul tells Timothy, reprove and rebuke and exhort with all patience. And he's talking about Timothy in relation to believers, people in the church. Um, you know, these, these words sort of kick against the goad in our uh, nice guy culture. Um, but not only are we to be taught the truth, but God's people should be applying the truth to each other's lives. And we should be telling each other when our lives are out of step with the truth. And this, it's, it's unfortunate to me, and, and, and I do it as well, that we so often, we want to hide our sins, and so we want to pretend to be somebody we're not, and living in a way that we're not. God's people should be so hungry to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, and so hungry to to see God's power at work in them that we want each other to tell us when our lives are out of step with the truth. We should want to hear that. We are, we are called as Christians to speak the truth to love one another, to, to speak the truth in love to one another. We are not called to niceness. Niceness is hate. Niceness is standing idly by while you watch somebody make decisions that are going to bring them under slavery to sin and bondage and death. Niceness is standing by while somebody is destroying their lives and being too cowardly to say something to them. Kindness is speaking the truth in love. And that's what we're called to. We're called to speak the truth and love to one another. And this is the hard part. We're called to be humble enough to let the truth be spoken in love to us. And I would just ask you, for the Christians here, are you being trained? Are you growing in your knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures? Was 2012 a year that was marked by growth and understanding of the truth and growth in having your life conform to Christ-likeness? You know, we don't come here on Sunday for entertainment. And reading the Bible is not entertainment. And I confess, sometimes I read the Bible and I feel like the dumbest person in the world because it doesn't make any sense because I'm dull. It's not entertainment, though. It's hard work. It's training. But we can persevere and endure and know that God's going to give us success. We come here on Sunday morning to worship the living God as the family of God and to be trained to fight the good fight of the faith. And I just want to ask you, are you in this process? Now, before we continue on with uh, what God or what Paul has to say through uh, here, I just want to bring up a kind of a side issue that this brings up. So what about false teachers? You know, so far I've said the scriptures say that it's God's word and that God raises up people to teach and to proclaim and to apply the truth. But does that mean that every Yahoo that waves a banner and says, I speak for God, really does? No, absolutely not. The Scriptures clearly testify that there's always been false teachers, there are false teachers, and there will be false teachers. Peter says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. 
Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. There are false teachers. And so we have to be people of the Word because the Scriptures are the measure of truth. And we need to be able to discern what we're being told and what we're being sold and who's speaking to us. We can't just flip on the... Just because somebody gets an audience on the radio or gets a TV channel does not mean that they teach the truth. You know, I love in Acts 17, uh, Paul has been proclaiming the Gospel in Thessalonica and they run him out of town. And he goes to the next town over, which is Berea, and it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Back to my Ephesians 4 verse that Paul or that God raises up apostles and prophets and teachers to equip the church. He continues and says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And I would just remind you that the devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the manner of his devouring is through lies. He sells us lies, we willingly buy lies, and we sell ourselves into bondages of slavery and sin and death. God wants us to set us free, but he, and he does so through the apprehension of the truth. And so we need to be people of the truth who are learning and growing in our understanding of the truth. So it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Paul says in Romans 28, uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And like I said earlier, the Christian life is a life of discipleship. We are meant to be trained to live Christ-like lives. And this process of transformation is a process of God working in our lives through faith in Christ. Uh, just thinking of the transformative process and this discipleship process, you know, when God brings the Jews out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, He tells them, I'm taking you to a promised land. He promised, it was a unilateral promise He made to Abraham that He was going to give to Abraham's descendants the land of promise. And so they, they, God said He was going to give it to them and He would. But they still had to show up. They still had to go take it. God promised, and it was God that was going to strengthen them. It was God that would guide them. But they had to show up for the task, and they had to get in the fight. And God has promised eternal life to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And we're meant to submit to this process of discipleship whereby we take hold of eternal life. And we can be absolutely confident that we get in the arena, if we get in the fight, if we're laboring to understand God's Word, humbly accepting reproof, correction, that God will give us victory and He'll be at work transforming our lives. So, all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And then he continues, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul says, Tim, God's spoken and His Word is useful for you to train up God's people. You should proclaim it and explain it and apply it so that God's people would live the lives that God has called them to live. And the word here for equipped, it literally means fitted for the task. God is at work in the lives of believers perfectly fitting us for the tasks that He has given us. And we've got work to do. We, 
God, God did not save us in Christ and then just leave us here so that we could sit idly by and just wait. If He wanted to pluck us up into heaven right now, He absolutely could. We're here for a reason. He's given us a new life. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us spiritual gifts and He's given us work to do. Continue with the Ephesians 4 verse. And, God, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And then he continues, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We've all been given spiritual gifts. We've been given a new life. We've been clothed with God's power. God's given us His Word, and He's given us a ministry. And the body of Christ desperately needs the ministry of every Christian. We all have a ministry. And just to comment on the good works, we are not saved by good works, but good works are the natural outworking of our faith. If we trust in Christ for our salvation, we should trust in Christ for our lives and live lives that glorify Him. Good works are the means by which we abide in God's fellowship, the means by which we find our delight in Him, we serve Him, we glorify Him. They testify to the truth. They build up the church. So just a few final thoughts. Um, I would again just say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, God has spoken with clarity. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And I would just plead with you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. When I, when I opened, I was talking about um, just this last five years and this, this transformative process that God's been at work in in my life. Um, and I would just say again, I'm not saying that studying the Scriptures are, are easy. You know, when I, when I first, uh, well, when Mike first told me, listen, you need to get in your Bible, um, I had the hardest time just getting my lazy butt out of bed. And I had to find people that were willing to help me, and I had to persevere, and it was a long process. Everything's been a long process. I'm constantly amazed at how uh, slow to learn and, and dull that I can be, but if we labor and persevere and continue, we can be confident that God is going to help us take new ground by faith. And I would just personally testify to you that God can, will, wants to radically transform your life God can conquer fear and sin and death in your life. God can conquer anxiety. God wants to do awesome things in your life. And we just have to submit to this process. We have to be people who are about God's Word and hungry to live lives that are conformed to the Word. So Jess and I, we're leaving on Friday for Dallas. Um, we feel really confidently that God's told us to go. Um, not absolutely sure. It's not written in the Bible. But over the course of three years, laboring to figure out what God wants us to do, we feel pretty confidently that this is what He wants us to do. And it's not without hurdles. I mean, I don't, we, uh, we, already signed, we already told our apartment we're leaving on Friday. I've already reserved a truck for Friday. And the means by which we meant to pay for all of this was selling a truck that hasn't sold yet. And we still don't have an apartment in Dallas yet. And I still don't have a job in Dallas yet. And I haven't even been 
accepted to the seminary yet. And you know what? I believe with confidence that God's called us to do this, and so we're going to go do it. And God is absolutely, absolutely capable of providing for all of our needs. And I would just ask you, if you have incredulity about whether God's at work in your life, just to wait and see what He does, because God has promised in Romans 8.28 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So if we drive down and the truck blows up halfway and everything we own burns to the ground and we hitchhike the rest of the way and don't have a dollar to our name and don't have an apartment and we come back in six months because it wasn't what God wanted us to do, I can absolutely guarantee that God's going to work it out for our good. You can absolutely stake your life on God's Word and we need to be people of the Word. And I pray that, I pray that you would be. Let's pray. Lord, you're a God who speaks. You speak new life into this world. You've given us your word that we know you and understand you, that we know Christ, that we'd be able to accept the gospel, that we'd be trained to live righteous lives, abounding in good works, Lord, that glorify you and serve you. Lord, you want so many good things for us if we would just listen. And Lord, I pray that you'd be giving eyes to see and ears to hear and applying the truth to your people and filling them with new life, and that you'd be using your church, Lord, to testify to the truth. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.